The following is a presentation of the Premier Dance Network. Hi everyone, Kimberly Falker here, the founder and CEO of the Premier Dance Network, the only podcast network dedicated solely to the world of dance. And welcome to Pod to Chat with your host, Barry Corellis. Hello and welcome back. Thanks for coming to chat. I am your host, Barry Corollis, and you are listening to Pod to Chat Talking Dance on the Premier Dance Network. In this bi-weekly podcast, I candidly offer educational conversations and thoughtful analysis on all things dance. With my vast background as a director, choreographer, instructor, and dancer, I am happy to share my 19 plus years of experience with you. Whether you're a professional dancer or just listening in for an insider's look into our fascinating art form. So put your earbuds in, grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's talk dance. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Pod of Chat Talking Dance. I know what you're all thinking. I said bi-weekly podcast, and it hasn't been so bi-weekly in the past year, but I'm going to keep on saying it because, you know, inspiration for me to do better with these, but we're still getting them out regularly enough, um, and I, as I keep on saying, I'm planning on continuing to do that. Um, thank you to those of you who reached out to me to talk about my burnout that I mentioned in the last episode. I think I spent like 20 minutes talking about it. Um, I finally am starting to feel like I'm starting to come out of it, and I'm able to focus a little bit better, and I'm starting to actually figure out like how to move forward um, with like my life and my career. Um, and not ready to share all of those details yet, but uh, as you know me, I probably will. But yeah, so, um, I'm just really glad that I've given myself the time and the space to, at the beginning of this new year, um, to just sort of like not be on overdrive. One of my close friends, he's, uh, in New York city ballet and he also, as uh, on the faculty at the School of American Ballet, he he said to me the other day, he's like, I don't really know anybody that fires on uh, like all cylinders at all times, um, except for you. Um, and he said, I as as much as it it's it's a good thing for you, he said it's not a healthy thing. So um, I completely agree with what he said, and I'm trying to reconstruct my my life and my practice so that I am not always firing on all cylinders. So. Yeah, and that giving myself some space with these podcasts has been a part of that. So, um, yeah, that's where I am with that. So let me tell you a very quick, exciting story. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was in Los Angeles a couple of weeks ago with my husband, visiting his friends and family. Um, try to go out there at least once a year, maybe twice a year if we can. And um, we left on like a Thursday, and we're supposed to come back on a Friday. And the beginning of the second part of the, the, the week that we were there. So we, we got there on Thursday. So the beginning of the next week, um, I got a call from Youth America Grand Prix asking if I could judge a competition. Um, and it, <laughs> they asked me to go to Kansas City, and then they changed it to Denver, and then they changed it back to Kansas City. And I ended up actually leaving my Los Angeles trip two days early um, to go judge and teach master classes for Youth America Grand Prix in Kansas City. Um, and it was very exciting. I didn't realize I had no winter clothes because I was in Los Angeles. Um, so all the the people, the the judges and uh, everybody helped me gather clothing together so that I didn't freeze my booty off. Um, but I had a great time. I got to meet several new schools. Um, I got to teach a handful of classes and it was really just, it was crazy getting there. Um, but it was exciting and I really had a great time. Um, and in good news, this weekend, uh, I'm recording this on Tuesday, March 8th, so I'm hoping this will go out um, by Saturday. Um, but uh, I'm going, I was actually asked to go to Indianapolis as well. Um, so I initially was only doing Pittsburgh for Youth America Grand Prix. I ended up doing Masterclass for the New York Regionals, and then I did judging and Masterclass for uh, Kansas City, and now I'll be heading to Indianapolis this weekend. So um, I'm loving being a part of the YAG GP community. Um, if you listen to my last episode, I actually discussed like how I went about judging at these competitions. So um, if you're curious, you can go back and listen to that if you haven't already. But yeah, I'm really enjoying it. It's great uh, to meet new communities. The networking with the uh, with my colleagues and peers is 
wonderful. And I, I'm just really happy to be a part of that community. So that is that. What else? Summer teaching updates. I got like minimal, minimal, minimal notes here today. So it's going to be kind of an off the cuff episode. Who knows what's going to happen? But summer teaching updates. I am um, currently, my month of August is practically booked up. I do have a little bit of space I believe towards the end of August, but, um, and maybe early now, I'm not sure. Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm going to be in Houston for a week. I'll be in the Seattle Bellevue area for a week, and then I'll probably be in the DC, like Maryland area. Um, I'm also talking to several other schools about teaching at their summer intensives in June and July. Um, if you are interested in having me, um, come out to do anything from ballet classes and or contemporary classes, pas de deux classes, um, all the way out up to like choreography for solos, duets, or, um, ensemble pieces, please reach out to me sooner than later. Um, because I'm booking up fast. I, I think right now I'm definitely going to be in like five or six cities this summer. Um, but it's, it's looking like it might be more like eight to nine. Um, so it's going to be a busy, busy summer. But if you want to try to get in there, um, send me a message pronto. Um, you can DM me on my Instagram at B Corollis, B-K-E-R-O-L-L-I-S, or go onto Facebook for Barry Corollis and send me a message there. Um, or uh, right now my barrycorollis.com website isn't up. Um, so you can head to movementhqballet.org um, and you can send me a, a message there through our contact page. Um, so if you're interested in having me come out to teach, uh, I love meeting new communities and uh, engaging with all different types of students. So you can reach out to me there. Um, is there any other news? I don't really think there is. I should have some updates about movement headquarters coming up, hopefully in the next month or so. Um, and Oh, I'm, I, that's something else. My uh, Actually, through Movement Headquarters Open Class Program, we're going to be doing a pirouette workshop for adult beginners starting Thursday, uh, March 17th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. at Battery Dance. So if you're interested in joining us for that pirouette workshop, um, you can follow those other pathways that I just mentioned to, uh, to let me know that you're interested in that. All right, so let's get on to today's episode. That's not bad. Last week's intro was like 20 minutes. This one's about seven minutes. So here we are. Um, I've been trying to like rack my brain on different topics that I can do. Uh, I realized about a week or two ago that <laughs> in the past decade, which is crazy, I still feel like I'm like 20 and that would make me like 10 years old, but I'm not. Um, but in the past decade, I have produced about 200 blogs 200 podcasts episodes um, and like 20 to 30 articles in dance periodicals like Dance Magazine and Point and Dance Teacher. Um, I am like, <laughs> I can't believe that I've produced that much content. It's crazy. Um, and I've been trying to figure out like how to create new content without like always having to like repurpose old content. Um, which is like something that eventually people have to do when you're creating the type of output that I am. Um, but I was really excited because I thought of a topic that I don't think I've talked about really at all before. Um, and I think you're going to really love this one. So this week I'm going to talk about commonly seen technical differences in training, um, what I teach and why. Um, so it's kind of this idea. You have a range of different, uh, curriculums that people will teach uh, ballet technique from. Um, granted, there are a lot of people just teaching like whatever they feel, um, but then there are like strict syllabi, syllabi, syllabuses, syllabi, it's syllabi. There are strict syllabi that people have to follow uh, or that people follow in order to train students and they come from major, major programs in schools. Um, I did a podcast back like the second year where I interviewed like nine different people from these different techniques. If you want to find more information about that, you can go back to that episode. It was a two-parter. It was a long one. Um, but we talked about every, like what what were the particular things with like Vaganova, um, Chiquetti, RAD, Cuban training, Bourninville, um, did I say RAD, French, uh, and all different styles like that. So, um, th for the most part, like the foundation for ballet training is, is pretty similar. Like we have plies, we have tendus. Some people say the term jeté. Some people say the term dégagé. Um, you have 
Ronda Jean, like that, those are all generally going to be shared across the different training programs. Um, but then there are like weird little stylistic differences. Um, I said weird, but I didn't mean weird. They're just like different styles and uh, opinions on the way that certain things should be executed. Um, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. Uh, the different things, the different ways to execute things, what I teach, um, if I think anything is right or wrong. Um, and just keeping in mind that this is my opinion, um, because really in reality, when it comes to technique, the only wrong way to dance is dancing that injures you. Um, everything else after that was just an opinion, um, that somebody had, they liked a foot to be more bent. Balanchine liked, uh, a certain proportion of the body is hyperextension, things like that. Um, so, uh, yeah. Let's let's move on from here. So here we go. We're going to get started. I think I, when I went through and listed the things I wanted to talk about, um, I started with the head and the hands, and then we're going to actually go to like, like pretty much through the structure of class. So okay, the placement of the head. Um, some techniques say that you should turn your head slightly to the side, or others say you should turn your head slightly to the side and then you should lean a little bit. So um, I wouldn't necessarily say uh, tell dancers to lean in class. It's more like a pressing forward of the cheek. Um, but what it does is it causes more of like a diagonal of the head um, as it turns versus um, just like the chin being level with the floor and then turning to the side. Um, so... I was taught when I did Vaganova more to turn the head to the side, but then when I started doing balancing training, I was taught to do more of like that pressing the cheek forward to give that sense of leaning to the head. Um, I still to this day uh, teach the lean more, the the reaching forward with the cheek than just turning the head. Um, and there's the reason that I do that was because somebody actually explained it to me um, physically versus just being like, I like this versus I like that. If you look at the way that the head is structured um, or the features on the head are structured, you have the eyes, the mouth, the nose, the cheeks. And those are really like the things that people identify. I guess you could say hair too, but um, the hair is on top, so it's going to take on light. But so what ends up happening is when you are on stage and you're dancing, uh, we have all these lights around us so that uh, we can be seen on stage and that the audience knows where to look and what to look at. Um, so if you turn off the lights in your room and you use like the flashlight on your phone and look in a mirror, um, this is actually pretty, for a lot of people, it's like revel, it's a revelation. Um, so what happens is if you look straight ahead and you have lights above to the side and diagonal, um, like the spots that, uh, the spotlights, not like the follow spot, but like the spotlights on the diagonal right there, um, because of the way that most people's faces are structured, we have like eyes that are set into like bone. So your eyebrows where those bones are, are actually hanging over top of that socket. And same, you have your cheekbones, which are more pronounced and that hangs over to over your cheek. And then you have your chin um, and that hangs over your neck. So if you hold the light on a diagonal and you don't really lift or lean the head or turn the head, um, you get shadows, almost like you're telling a ghost story. Um, but if you turn the head and then you reach the cheek forward, what happens is the light is actually able to enter the eyes and it's able to enter the underneath the cheek and you, you lose those shadows. And even enough, you can get some of that off of your neck. So um, I believe that the lean is the correct way to teach um, because it's not so much just about look um, for somebody's opinion of a training style. It's actually functional on stage. Um, and that's really what I always go for. Um, I, I trained uh, kind of in a mix as a kid between like Cicchetti, Vaganova, RAD, and maybe things I don't even know. Um, and then I went to the Kirov, which was super Vaganova. And then I went to the School American Ballet, which was super Balanchine. And then pretty much ever since then, as a professional, I kind of got to make my own decisions. Um, but yeah, so I uh, 
I started to think like all these different things that I was trained because really it was like I went like Kirov one year, SAB one year, Houston Valley the next year, PNB the next year, and everybody wanted very different things. And I had to, I started to get confused and I had to start to make decisions and say, okay, I'm going to do this versus just changing every single time I go somewhere new. Um, so I found that that lean uh, was the more valuable one because it made more sense to me because um, it's functional versus just like something that somebody told you to do. Okay. Holding your fingers. So um, when you, the, the hands can be very complex. They're actually one of the harder things for a lot of people to, to get because the fingers are further away from your brain than most everything else except for your feet and your toes. Um, so you can often forget about your fingers uh, and that can mean that they just go limp or they get stiff or anything in between. Um, but the general way that the hand is supposed to be held is that uh, the thumb and the middle finger are going to be a little closer together. Um, the pinky and the index finger are going to be along the same line. And then the pinky, uh, the ring finger and the middle finger are going to cascade one slightly in front of the other. Um, so if you do that, what it does is it gives a nice shape to your hand. But um, depending on if you do straighter fingers or if you do curved fingers, it gives a different look. Um, in more classical styles, the hands tend to be, or the fingers tend to be less separated and they tend to be closer together. The fingers, even though they're they're curved, they're only mildly curved. But if you go into a balancing classroom, which people love to make fun of, um, they tend to cup their palm almost like they're holding onto a softball. And it's almost like the intention of the fingers coming together. Um, but there's more space between the fingers. But the same thing happens. You have um, the, separ the same separation as a classical hand. But because of that feeling of a softball in your palm and more separation between the fingers, it's a much wider hand. Um, also, the fingers uh, are more curved in a balancing hand than they are in a classical hand. Um, so for me... I kind of like decided that I like the middle ground. So I let my thumb come out more so that there's like more definition between the fingers. Um, but I don't overly curve my fingers. They're, they're curved, but they're a little bit longer. And for me, I like that. It's like a nice middle ground between the two. And it just came down to a, a preference that I looked at it and I said, this, I like this better for me. Um, I am my own person. I am an adult. I'm a professional and I can start to make decisions. So, um, and nobody's really ever messed with me since I decided to do that. So I guess that worked out well. Um, <laughs> so yeah. All right. That is that. Um, I'm not really going to Turk, talk, Turk, Turk about, I'm not going to talk about, um, like turnout in this because I think that that's, uh, more like, I, I don't think it really goes in line with a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about. Um, like, I think you need to be turned out, but I don't think you should be like breaking your body. Um, but I'm not even going to get into that. Um, cause I don't think that that's really stylistic. I think that that's just like something across the board that everybody wants you to turn out. Um, all right. Where are we now? So we're going to move on to Tondu and Jete. Okay. I have a couple things to say about this. So, okay, accent in versus accent out versus even. Um, if you look at certain styles of dance, they tend to mostly have the dancers do accent out. So instead of um, going out in and holding the leg in fifth position after the tendu or jeté, they'll go out, in, out, in, out, and in. Um, or they'll go out in, out in. Um, or they'll go out and in and out and in. Yeah, so some styles, usually more classical styles, the focus is on the out. Um, but in balancing, the accent for musicality is often on the in. Um, I tend to prefer the accent in to the, the position that you're finishing in, usually fifth position, because um, we find stability on two feet. Um, and... Also, it's the idea that like when you start to jump, you are going to need to be able to get your legs back underneath yourself. That's more important than getting them out. Yes, you need to get them out. There is a purpose to getting the legs out, um, but uh, you it's more important that you get your legs back underneath yourself. So um, yeah, I tend to prefer the accent in. Um, I think it also speeds, adds speed and dynamics, um, more excitement in a tondu and a jeté as well, where if you do the out um, or the even, it tends to be more just about like the movement, uh, like the, the direction of the movement versus like the actual energy of the movement. Um, 
Though I do teach all three of these uh, because I think it's important to be able to focus on extending the line in tondu and bursting out of a position for a step like Petit Allegro or like a Grand Jeté um, and Grand Allegro. Uh, but also, like I said, I think it's important to get your legs back under under yourself to land when cl- completing a jump um, and for musicality. So I teach both, um, but I'd say 75 to 80% of tandus and jetés I teach in my classroom um, tend to be accent in. Okay, this one's a really controversial one. Um, Passe position. Let's talk about a few things. Um, All right, so lately I've been noticing that passe is getting higher and higher. I was always taught that your big toe goes in that little uh, pocket underneath your kneecap. Um where I'm starting to notice that dancers are, they're doing their passes like mid quad, not like all the way up their leg. Um, I honestly, and maybe I'm starting to get old school in my late thirties. Um, I prefer to keep the passe at the knee. Um, for me, the second that a leg starts to come off the floor, it tends to, so you're standing on your left leg, you pick up your right leg, um, whether it's front side or back, you tend to lift the right hip to pick it up instead of leveling your hips out. Um, so I like the idea that a a slightly lower knee is going to be easier, especially for younger students to maintain their hip placement. Um, the other thing is, uh, I'm all about uniformity. It's like, how do you get 24 swans to perform, to perform all the same steps at the same time in the lines in the same, at the same height? Um, you teach them how to be uniform in class. They start each combination looking at each other. They watch each other while they're dancing to make sure they're dancing at the same time, even in class, not just choreography. Um, so if every dancer has like a different range of, of, uh, ability to lift their foot up to a, a retire or passe position, um, those that can get their leg really high are never going to have their, their leg at the same height as those that can only get their, their knee high enough to get of their working leg high enough to get their retire um, or passe to the knee. So I like the idea that it's uniform across like most everybody I've ever met can at least get their big toe right underneath their kneecap. Um, but also the other one is the ability, the other reason. So I have a hip placement uniformity. And the last one is the ability to maintain lift of the knee for most dancers. Um, if you hold your knee too high in passe, it's going to rebound back down to the earth. But if you have it at a place where there's still the ability to move the knee higher, you're going to actually be able to maintain lift in the knee at all times. If you lift the leg up to retire and then you start your energy starts to drop, the leg starts to sag and feel heavy and it becomes harder to stay on balance, whether that's a stagnant balance or a turning balance. Um, so... Yeah, if you if you bring the toe to the bottom of the knee and the, the, the pressure in the quad and the knee is lifting up, even though the big toe isn't moving from below the knee, um, you're still going to have that feeling of lift. But if you go so high in your retirate that you don't have anywhere else to lift to, the likelihood of the leg starting to sag and feel heavy and drop is, is much higher. So I'm a big, big advocate for the passe right at the knee. Um, so yeah, okay, now what else? Passe back. Oh, let's talk about passe back. Is the big toe right behind that spot in front of the knee? Or is the heel touching the back of the knee? Um, Is it lower? Is it higher? Again, for me, it comes down to like quality control and uniformity. Um, I like the idea that you can return to the same spot. Um, So again, I strongly believe that the big toe should be directly behind the spot in the front of the knee. Um, because you can see it in a mirror and then you can find your way back to that consistently. Um, so I like retire back or passe back to be the big toe touching the back of the knee exactly in, um, opposite of the front of the knee where I mentioned before. Um, also one more part of passe when you do, uh, when you go passe, like true passe, not retire where you hold, um, where you go up to the leg, you go up and over, and you can do that from the front to the back or the back to the front. Um, do you do batu? Do you beat front and back or back and front? Or do you hit the position and then do you lift up and over and go? Um, I believe that batu is a is choreography, um, and I believe that lifting up and over is technique. So technique is what you do when you're not told uh, something different, and choreography is something that you are told to do that wouldn't necessarily be like, considered 
general technique. I think at a certain point, Batu was done, but then I think it was improved to that lift up and over. So if you look at a lot of old classical variations, you do have beat, beat, you have like passe, beat, beat, passe, beat, beat. Um, but I, I think that generally hitting the passe and then lifting up and over and sliding down the back leg, not actually stopping at the same spot behind the, the knee um, is the way to do it, or hitting passe back, lifting up and over to go from there. Um, that's what I'm a fan of. Again, that's an opinion at this point, but um, that's how I feel about passe. Passe is probably one of the most uh, passe positions uh, and passe execution are probably the least consistent thing I see these days. Um, everybody's doing it differently. And even when I teach open classes or company classes or pre-professional programs um, and, and I say it, like I clarify it and I'm very clear about it, people will still ignore me and they'll do whatever they were taught. Um, so I, I don't know how long it's going to take for that to really like stick into people's heads, but that's my opinion. I think that it should be hit the position, lift up and pass through the, the other position, not go hit the front position, hit the back and go down or hit the back, hit the front and go down. Um, all right, let's move on from passe. I could probably talk about that for another half hour. Um, Ronde Jean Parter. Um, is it accented? So should it go like front side back, front side back? Or should it be front side back, front side back first, front side back first? Um, for me, I like the idea that Ronde Jean is sort of like creating energy. Um, so I tend to do the accented Ronde Jean. Um, it's funny, this is actually one thing that my mentor Nancy Bielski and I do not agree upon. Um, she likes it to be even going around. Um, but for me, I, I like to have that accent because I think it's sort of like the, the predecessor to the fuete turn. And granted, everything's not about a fuete turn. Honestly, I wish that very few things were about the fuete turns, especially watching like contemporary pieces at Youth America Grand Prix. Like I don't need to see that you can do like multiple fuete turns, like maybe do a, a double fuete to a double attitude or double fuete to like a triple pirouette. Um, that's cool. But when you start doing like uh, coda fuete turns in the middle of a contemporary piece, I'm over it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I like the idea that you're starting to learn how to get two types of speeds and energies um, and how you can have that quick energy that sort of like dissipates, like almost like a, a firework going off really like sharply, boom. And then you see it slowly start to float to the ground. So um, for me, I like the energy that's created when you have an accented Ronde Jean Parterre, um, where a lot of times uh, teachers will ask their students to do an even, even one. Um, I don't know if, do I have Ronde Jean on Lair? don't think I have Ronde Jean Lair here, but um, I've seen this mostly across the board. Generally, the energy in a Ronde Jean Lair is um, quick, slow, quick, slow, quick, slow. And I like the idea that even though they don't have like the same pathway where you're going like front side, excuse me, you're going front side back or back side front in a Ronde Jean Parterre, um, in Ronde Jean Lair, it's just um, from the side to the end to the side with a little bit of an inclination back to front or front to back. Um, but it's the same energy. You don't generally go even through. You can, but the energy is usually quick, slow, quick, slow. So I like the idea that at Parterre, it's quick, slow around, quick, slow around. Um, that's Ronde Jean. All right, next up, we have fondue. Okay, is fondue 45 degrees? Is it 90 degrees? Or is it fondue développé? Um, I strongly believe that it is all of those things. It's kind of like uh, the tendu jeté conversation with the accent in, accent out, or the even. Um, generally, if I am asked to do a fondue, I will do the fondue to 45 degrees. Um, like that's like my baseline go-to. Um, but I believe that fondue to 45 degrees is valuable. I believe that fondue to 90 degrees is valuable. And I think that fondue develop is valuable. But you need to look at the teacher and you need to see what they're giving and not always assume that you're just going to do the thing that you do. Um, sometimes uh, this happens, like I said, with the, the other uh, step in class, I'll, I'll show like, don't do the passe bot too. And people still do it. Um, or I'll say not to do it. And people still do it. Still do it. Same thing with fondue. I'll be like, we're going fondue to 90 degrees, but it's definitely not fondue devil au pay. 
um, and they'll still go fondue, coupe, passe, attitude extend, and, and it's not right. So there's a different pathway to go from coupe to 45 degrees, coupe to 90 degrees, and then coupe through passe through attitude to 90 degrees. Um, so I believe that they're three different things and they should all be used throughout class because they come in handy in many different ways. Um, the one thing I would say, don't do fondue to passe to 45 degrees. It doesn't really make sense unless it's something choreographic. Um, so, okay, that's fondue. Devil will pay. So, I mean, I don't think I really need to give you information about stretching because stretching is, you know, it's stretching. Devil will pay. Okay, this one I have gone back and forth on for years, um, for actually for a while recently, I was doing the the other one, and then I just started changing this. But for développé, do you développé through sur le coup de pied, or do you développé through conditional coupé? Um, so, like I said, I go back and forth on this one a lot. I I don't know exactly the purpose of wrapping, but I do think it looks better. <clears throat> I stopped doing it for a while because I, I didn't really understand why I was doing it in the first place. Just somebody told me to do it. And I was like, okay, um, if you're going to do a fondue developé, you're going to do it from a conditional coupé or coupé derriere. Um, so I was also relating to that. Like if you're going to do that, you might as well do the same thing when you do a developé. Um, it, I think I believe it's a more classical way to do it from the conditional coupé and it's more balancing to do it from sur le coupé. Um, but I honestly think that the reason, like I've put a lot of thought into this recently, I think the reason that the sur le coup de pied is done, um, in développé, especially in Balanchine's work is because it's the point shoe. Um, if you are standing in Susu and you are going to développé from Susu on points, um, if you go to conditional coupé, sometimes it can be questionable whether you're actually like beginning the movement or your foot's just like moving. Um, but if you wrap the foot, it's like clear that you're changing the the position of the foot to uh, start the devil of pay. So I think what happened, and this is my thought process, is that um, at some point somebody said when you pick your foot up the conditional coupe to devil of pay um, while on point, I, I don't know that you're I, – I, I can't tell that you're starting the step. So why don't you just wrap it? And they did it, and it was an obvious difference, and they said, okay, well, that's that's where it is there. If anybody has an actual explanation of this, I would love to hear it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've recently started to go back to wrapping the foot on the way up to Devil Pay, um, which you can only do from the front and the side. You To the back, it's still Coupe Derriere, and if you're doing Devil Pay side or Écarté from the back, it's still going to be Coupe Derriere. Um but, yeah, I've gone back to the wrapping, and I like it again. Um, the way that it works is generally you wrap directly to the ankle from the floor, and then as you pass the, the calf, then your big toe starts to take over, goes to the knee, and then you can go out from there. Um, yeah, it's like a thing I like. I like it. I'm back on the I'm back on the bandwagon. But like I said, that's my like own thought process trying to figure out like why somebody chose to do that instead of just going through conditional coupe. Um, so like I said, if if you know, reach out to me. Let me know. I'm curious. All right, next frappe, 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 frappe. Is it flexed or is it pointed? Um, <laughs> I get this question almost like every third class I teach. Um, I currently teach pointed. I performed the flex foot frappe until like my sixth year as a professional. Um, the reason that I stopped performing frappe from a flex foot was because Marjorie Thompson, who was a teacher, uh, in Pacific Northwest Ballet School, she taught a, uh, she taught a company class. She didn't teach the company very often, but she had a nice class. Um, so she taught company class and she came out to me and she said, why, why don't you point your foot when you do frappe? And I had some explanation. I don't remember what it was, but it really struck me what she had to say. Um, she said that she she pretty much just posed the question. She said she said where do you use a flex foot in ballet technique? Um, and I was like, well, you could do it in a mazurka step. And she said, well, mazurka step is a character step. It's not a ballet step. Um, and then I started to think, and I was like, the only other places I could really think of a flex foot was something that was a character step and not a true classical ballet technique step. Um, and in reality, you don't really use a flex foot anywhere in classical ballet, um, like frappe is an, essentially the initiation of like continuous jetés uh, in petit allegro. Um, and you're not going to want your foot to be flexed ever in that 
So um, that was the day that I started always working from a pointed foot. I do think that starting with a flex foot is very valuable from a training perspective for kids because the like that striking the floor can be very hard to do from a pointed foot because um, you have to like point your foot. You have to just release the the toes, so you're essentially in demi point. You strike the floor through demi point and then pr- brush the toes as you get back up to 45 degrees. Um, so I think it's a useful tool in, in training students, but I don't think that it should be the end um, goal when training students. So I am officially a pointed foot in a frappe, and I'll be curious to see if you change your mind if you do the flex foot based off of this podcast. If you do, tell me. I'll be amused, mostly. <laughs> All right. Grandma Ma, I don't really have anything to say Grandma Ma. Grandma Ma is Grandma Ma. You can do accent out. You can do accent in. It's kind of like jeté in my opinion. So like I call it, I say it's a jeté that's gone too far or tendu that's gone too far. Um, kind of like a tendu can be a jeté and a Grandma Ma, but a Grandma Ma can't be a tendu or a jeté. Uh, it's like a square can be a rectangle, but a rectangle can't be a square. Like a tendu is a part of a, a, a Grandma Ma. But okay, now I'm talking about Grandma Ma and I don't want to. All right, next. Uh, oh, I thought I'd talk about this because... Um, and center arabesque is used a lot. Should you open the hips and the shoulders or should you be square? Um, I believe that the perfect dancer body should be able to do a square arabesque where the shoulders are are in line, the hips are in line, you're still turned out, the leg is high, the chest is lifted, all that stuff. But I honestly don't believe that practically anybody has the perfect ballet body unless you are in training or if you unless you've trained in Russia um and you were measured to dance um so uh sorry I got triggered by the word Russia and thought I should say something I'm just gonna leave that alone that'll be another podcast episode um but I support Ukraine let's go um (laughs) so okay uh should you open the hips or and, and shoulders or should you keep them square um so keeping in mind that most people are not going to be able to create a good line that way, I do believe that uh, you should open the hips and the shoulders. Um, I do believe that the idea of a square arabesque serves a purpose. It, it shows what the general direction of engagement of the where the muscles of the shoulders and hips should be. Um, so if you practice a square uh arabesque and then you really like note where are my shoulders where are my hips and then you open the hip and you open the shoulder slightly so you can get more extension and more turnout then keeping your that in mind engage your muscles back towards that square without actually shifting your bones and i think that that helps you to really create like a strong solid arabesque position that you can balance with um so i i i, I am a an advocate for opening your hip and your arabesque and even allowing the shoulders to open a little bit, but you don't want them to turn so to open so much that you pretty much look like your, your head and your uh, front arm and your leg are facing like on the diagonals and your shoulders, hips are facing like directly front. You don't want to look splayed. So I would avoid that. Um, so yeah, it's more for me, the square idea is more about muscle engagement than it is about actual structural placement of your bones. Um, yeah, I like that explanation for it. It took me a while to, to, to think of that. I mean, not for this podcast, but over the years. Okay, pirouette arms. Um, this is generally going to be like an onde or pirouette, um, whether it's from fifth or from fourth. Should they... Open, should both of them open to second before they come into first position? Um, or should you just close your arms into first immediately? Um, should you cross your wrists? Um, I, For me, I, I used to do, if you have like your left arm in second allongé and your right arm in first allongé in front of you, and you go and you reach, I used to do the right arm pulls into first, back into a round first, and the left arm pulls into first from second. But um, I was doing a gala for Siaskaya Ballet uh, back in like 2013 or 2012, 2012 um, in Long Island. And the teacher had several kids that were great turners. And um, she gave me a correction. She said, well, why don't you try opening your front arm to second and then pulling both of your arms in at the same time? And I tried that and I really latched onto that idea because I like the idea that if you have both arms in second position and you pull them both into first at the same time, you have equal energy coming and you're not going to overpower with one arm. Um, so I really like that idea. Um, 
And I still do that to this day and it works for me and that's what I teach. Uh, but I don't think one is right or one is wrong um, unless we talk to a physicist and they'd be able to explain it to us, um, which is going to give you like the best torque. Um, now, as for like crossing your wrists when your partner, sorry, when, when you're performing pirouettes, I believe that for me personally, it should only be used when partnering. Um, balance sheet technique does have the the dancers cross their wrists, um, but I, I just think it's not as helpful because if you're doing pirouettes on your own, it's the idea that your arms are supposed to counterbalance you. But if you're doing pirouettes partnered, you have somebody helping you balance. And then also you don't want to hit them with your elbows. So I think that you need the counterbalance of having more length in your elbows and your wrists um, when you're doing a pirouette so that it's like a longer first position and a wider first position. But then when you have assistance um, for the pirouettes, then you pull them in closer and that way you're not really harming your partner. So uh, that's how I feel about pirouette arms. Um, this is funny. I actually have a time frame, so I got to get this thing done. Um, so we're going to move on. I'm going to cut out the small talk. We're going to do a pirouette legs on the or from fourth. Do you do a straight back leg or do you do two bent legs? Um, this is the age old question. Which one should you do? I despise two bent legs. I think it is aesthetically not pleasing. Um, but again, this is just my opinion. Um, I just don't like how it looks. I think it's a shorter plie, um, a longer line. Like we're always talking about long lines in ballet. And then just so you can do more turns uh, or not even more turns, but just so you can pirouette, you bend both legs and give like a not aesthetically pleasing line. It turn For me, in my opinion, that turns into circus. Um, because it's more about, or sport, sorry, not circus, it could be circus too, but more about sport because it's not about how it looks. It's more about just like the function of it. Um, so yeah, I think it's more aesthetically pleasing and I don't really think it changes very much. I also like the idea that it's a clear moment when the plie prep happens. Cause if you have both of your legs in plie, you have to, you're almost, you have to almost do like a quarter plie and then a full demi plie. And I don't teach a quarter plie when I, in my classes, so yeah, for me, it really comes down to like, you need to have that clear moment where, okay, I have a straight leg and then I bend and I push off of it as opposed to like, they're both bent. Oh, am I bending more? Am I bending enough? Am I already fully bent? And then you go from there. I feel like the arms end up doing more work when you have two plies as opposed to like having equal amount of push to rotate in a pirouettes on the air. Okay. Let's talk on day down pirouettes. Um, so just traditional on dedan, not like an attitude or an arabesque. But in a, <coughs> excuse me, in an on dedan pirouette, um, do you go all a second at ninety degrees and passe, or do you go directly to passe? Um, the the second t position all a second to passe tends to be more classical, where the straight to passe tends to be more neoclassical. I prefer straight to passe. Um, I think that it's a more direct path. Um, I think it's cleaner. It's not as violent uh, of a preparation. Um, I feel like. For two or three pirouettes on a don, you really don't need all of that energy. I think it's more efficient. And again, I think it's a cleaner look. Um, there is a time and a place for that, like, all of second pull-in. But I think it's when you, like, really want to show off and do, like, multiple, multiple pirouettes. So say you're doing Don Quixote and you're going to go for, like, five on a don pirouettes. So yeah, go for that all of second and whip that leg in so that you can get those multiple turns. But if you're going to do two or three, I think it's much better to go straight to retro. I also, yeah... I, I, I believe that you should hit retire in plie and then rise um, as opposed to rising right away to it because that, that way you have your leg in the position and then you turn once you're up. I, I don't think that you should be f coming into a position as you're turning because the centrifugal force starts to pull your leg away from your other leg and it, it's actually harder to execute. So, all right. Here we go. Fuete turns. Should you open front side and pull in or should you open second and back into retro? Second and back into retro. I honestly think that the open second and back in is ugly and it's frantic and it's not truly whipping. Um, so it doesn't hold true to the idea of a fuete turn. Vaganova generally is, I think, the only one that goes like second and second and second in. Um, I think the, ad the adaptation of going plie front and then side releve and then re passe go going in. I think it's much nicer. It continues that feeling of being circular where when you're doing the fuete to second, it's kind of like line, circle, line, circle, line, circle. Where when you do a fuete, it's like a reach long round pull, long round pull, long round pull, long round pull. So it 
makes the whole body uh, continuously rotate as opposed to this like breaking the energy, pulling in, breaking the energy, pulling in, breaking the energy, pulling in. Obviously, they both work, but that's my opinion. Okay, spotting front. Should you spot front when you do Sinead turns or any pirouette or step over turns? Um, or should you spot where you're going? Classical spot where you're going. Balancing is the only one that spots front. Um, I did both. I can do both. I think there's a time and a place. I think the only time and place for spotting front, honestly, is balancing choreography because it was choreographed that way. Um, I think it's much more functional to do it in the direction that you're facing um, because that's like where you're going to start. That's where you're going to end. Um, I mean, I, the idea behind balancing spotting front, having dancers spotting front was that you're dancing to the audience and all of a sudden you're like losing the energy of facing the audience. Um, but I don't think it's functional, like truly functional in a sense uh, to spot front. Um, when it's like you walk down the street, you look where you're going. Like I, I complain about walking through Times Square all the time here in New York City because people, they, they think they're walking straight ahead and then they see like a screen and they look over there and all of a sudden they're walking diagonally. I think it's kind of counterintuitive to spot directly front when your body's traveling sideways. So <clears throat> and it's like when you gesture to people and at other points, you don't always face downstage to the audience. So I don't think it's necessary to do the spot front. But it's like I was saying before, technique versus choreography. I think that if you're going to do balancing choreography and the choreography asks you to spot front, do it. Um, <clears throat> that's the idea of a dancer. You should always be able to respond and react to what a choreographer wants. And that would be that type of situation, even though he's no longer living. All right, we're almost there. Speaking of, what is this? Why did I say speaking of? That's funny. Every once in a while, I'll say things and then I'll go, hmm, uh, jump to point or shift weight to rise. Okay, let's talk about point, point shoes. Should you like jump and scoop your toes underneath or should you shift over onto your point shoe? I think there's a time and a place, but I generally think that you should be able to quickly spring to releve without leaving the floor. So you should be shifting your weight over. Um, it's safer. It's less pounding on the joints by like leaving the floor and then like landing fully extended um, with all of your weight on your joints. Also, I think it's more stable. Um, I teach this pirouette thing um, where if you take a water bottle and you spin it and let it drop on the floor, usually it just stops the second it hits the floor. Um, and that's like a, a bottle full of water. And our bodies are also full of water. So if, you, if you're trying to rotate, like to go up into a pirouette on point, um, if you jump on the point and then rotate, essentially you're already landing and your force is done. You want to spring over to your point and shoot, like go over onto your leg and then turn. You don't want to jump. Um, but I, I do think that it's very important to be able to learn how to like jump and scoop your toes underneath because um, it's not always going to go perfect when you rise to point and you do need to have that ability to like save to to save uh, yourself when you're when you're going on the point. You'll see it a lot in fuete turns where they start hopping on the point as they start to fall off balance. Um, so yeah, I am a firm believer in springing to points, um, but like shifting your weight onto point as opposed to like leaving the floor and scooping the toes underneath. But you do need to learn both. All right, almost done. We're up to jumping. Um, heels up or heels down when you jump. Um, I'm a firm believer that uh, you should do the heels down at all times except for when it's fast. Um, in the balancing technique, they say keep the heels up, but also balancing jumps, petite allegro are generally very fast. Um, I think that when you don't get the heels down, the Achilles shortens and you have more likelihood to get Achilles tendonitis. I've had issues before where I thought my ankles start to hurt and I'm like, why are they hurting? And then I realize I'm not putting my heels down. It happened a lot during rubies, Balanchine's rubies. So that makes sense. But yeah, so definitely heels down if you can in my class. But there is a time and a place to, to keep the heels up when you plie. Um, one of the arguments is that if you plie and then the heels rise after you plie deeper, that it gives you a little bit more of a deeper plie to jump out of. There's an argument for that. Um, but yeah, I'm more of a heels down type person. Um, all right, we got two more things. Changement. Should you change right away in the air? Should you hold and then change? Or should you change evenly? Generally, most of the places I go now, they change right away in the air, but um, different styles, different times, um, they can be done. In a more classical piece, sometimes you'll hold it and then change. Same thing for échappés. Um, do you hold it and then open and land, or do you open as fast as you can and then land? I like the idea of opening as fast as you can because then you can take a picture in the air 
um, as opposed to seeing the position on the ground. I think it's more exciting to see it in the air. So I'm an advocate for changing right away or opening right away um, as opposed to holding the position and then changing or holding the position and opening. Um, here we go. Last one. Grand jeté. Is it a full split or is it up and over? I think it's both. Um, there was a time where it was just up and over because dancers did not have the extreme flexibility that is required today to be a dancer. Um, but uh, now we we have more dancers like that. So um, it was always supposed to go up and over. So as you go into your full split, you should think that you're going up and then over and then meeting both legs at the same time in the air before you go over and land. So in a grand jeté, it should be both up and over and a full split. All right. So in the end, every one of the or most of these are technical choices that are based off of opinion and preferred aesthetic in line. Um, the as I said before, the only way it is truly wrong is if you you get injured from doing it. Um, so yeah, those are my thoughts on all of these technical things that people are always uh, asking questions about in class. Um. I would love to hear from you. Let me know what you think about this. Like, do you have different opinions than I do? Do you have different explanations than I do? If you do, you can always reach out to me. Um, But yeah, I I thought this would be a really interesting podcast and I hope that you enjoyed it. I have to get going. I got plans, people. This is a New York City lifestyle. So I'm going to call this the end of the episode um, and we're going to go to our outro. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Pod to Chat Talking Dance. If there are any topics you'd like to hear me talk about, please feel free to reach out to me via my website contact page. Currently, it is at www.movementhqballet.org, which also houses my company, Movement Headquarters. You can reach out to me on there. We have a contact page, and you can ask me questions. You can give me topics, and you can uh, get you can get in contact with me that way. <laughs> Um, you can also reach out on there if you'd like to become a sponsor for our podcast or to book master classes in ballet or contemporary technique for choreography or speaking engagements. I hope you enjoyed listening in and talking dance with me. If you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to share, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes. Every bit of extra visibility helps keep these podcasts running. And if this didn't fulfill your dance fix, check out my sister podcasts on the Premier Dance Network. If you want to connect with me to see where I'm choreographing, teaching, and what I'm doing in my everyday life, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, where my name is at B Carolis. Uh, you can check out my company at movement underscore headquarters or on Twitter at Bariscos. Also be sure to check out my blogs, Life of a Freelance Dancer, where I wrote for five years about touring as a freelance artist and independent contractor. I also have Dancing Off Stage and I wrote on there about the post-performance careers of professional dancers. You can also check out my work on YouTube by visiting my channels, B Carolis or Movement Headquarters. Thanks for listening in to Pod of Chats. I hope you return two weeks from this Saturday to talk dance with me. And remember to go out and support your local dance scene.